This is available as a podcast and a webinar. What? I just wanted to say that if everyone is attending the eviction class on Friday, it will be interactive. So there will be, some of you might remember we've done it with Slido that you can answer questions. So it would be easier if everyone could connect on a computer and then use your phones to answer the questions. That's all I wanted to say. Hi, uh, good afternoon and welcome to the 2023 Pro Tem Roundtable. Uh, this is um, also an interactive session. Uh, we have a number of items that we wanted to talk to you about and a number of items that you wanted to talk about. Uh, so hopefully you will find this really beneficial. And we are joined by um, an all-star cast. Uh, we do have Judge Huberman, who um, everyone knows is our presiding justice of the peace. Uh, and a uh, because of the pandemic was justice of the peace for at least two years. Uh, we have Lenore Triggs, who is the just uh, who is the associate presiding justice of the peace out of Arcadia Biltmore, not to be confused with the other Judge Riggs, uh, Driggs, excuse me, um, who's in Superior Court. And we do have Judge Kathy Riggs, who is the uh, judge in uh, in. Um, oh, gosh, North Valley. No. Desert Ridge. Desert Ridge, oh, thank you, sorry. And um, she is the chair of, of the Pro Tem Hearing Officer Mediator Committee. Uh, we also have Taj Rahi Lu, who's the Administrative Pro Tem, and I, of course, am Charles Adernetto, who um, the Judicial Education Officer. And do we have anything we want to discuss before we start with the PowerPoint? Well, the first thing I wanted to do was let everyone have these links uh, to our new judge orientation webinars. Uh, almost everything was downloaded and put into uh, into YouTube, and um, these are really valuable review sessions. If if it's been a while, uh, or if you're a long term or long time pro tem who before we had a serious uh, in internal new judge orientation process, you might find this valuable, both again as a review or maybe something you've heard for the first time. Uh, we don't, uh, for those of you who've done it in the last couple of years, we do six days of orientation and we do spend a lot of time on some of these sessions. Uh, so you're welcome to go in and watch any of the ones that you may be interested in. And so the first thing we wanted to talk about is Prop 209, and I'll let uh, Judge Huberman address that. All right, good morning all. Um, so as, as, as all of you must know by now, Prop 209 uh, was passed by the voters in the November election last year. Um, it, it was a little bit of a confusing proposition because 
I think it was titled something about medical debt. Um, and it does have a, a, a portion of it that's medical debt. But the part that affects us the most is the part that relates to garnishments. Um, the, the, the proposition itself was challenged by a group of collection attorneys and did not go into effect right away. Uh, but then on December 16th of last year, uh, finally, the the court uh, said that it was not unduly vague and, and, and allowed it to go into effect. Uh, so the effective date of the proposition is December 5th of 22. And what it establishes as to garnishments is that the, the garnishment can no longer be at uh, a rate higher than 10%. Um, and it can be reduced to 5% in a case of hardship. What? As you remember, um, it... No. The, the previous to that, it was 25%. Someone does, need, someone does need to mute your microphone. Oh, that's Mr. Ramsey. I'm muting you. Okay. It was 20... It was 25% and it could be reduced to 15%. And I think most of us, uh, I mean, obviously if the if the creditor didn't agree, you needed to get information as to why to reduce. Um, but anyone who made, um, you know, if they, they didn't make very high salaries, uh, it wasn't much of a, of a stretch to find that there was high financial hardship and we would reduce routinely the 25% uh, down to the 15%. I would suggest, I haven't had any requests in all this time to reduce from the 10% down to the 5%, uh, but I would suggest that if that was were a request that you got, that you would have to be a little bit more cautious as it is not, um, the 10% the already is lower than the 15, uh, which was the law previously. So just something to consider. Charles, we lost the slide. Correct. Yeah, I was going to put up the attachment. Oh. Okay. Um, Do you want to talk about the attachment? Well, right. So, so what's happened is that... Um, I guess the, the 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 idea had to do with how do we determine uh, what provisions of the proposition went into effect on December 5th. So it's clear that the medical debt portion, which is that no interest on medical debt can be higher than 3%, applies to contracts that were entered into after the effective date. So if you are getting a request for a medical debt uh, that was incurred after December 5th of 22, then that contract would have to be limited to a 3% debt. Uh, with the garnishments though, um, the argument that the attorneys that were questioning the proposition are making um, is that, is that same argument that any contract that was entered into or any case that was filed prior uh, to December 5th of 22 uh, should have the old garnishment law 
and not the new garnishment law. Uh, we did a lot of uh, thorough research on this case and the best practices committee and the bench as a whole um, has interpreted that the garnishment is not a legal right uh, that is part of the contract. So the date of the garnishment is what decides what the percentage of the garnishment is. So the date of the contract doesn't matter. The date that the case was filed doesn't matter. Only the date of the writ uh, of restitution, uh, the writ of garnishment. Um, we have actually interpreted that the date of the application of the writ is the date that rules. Um, I know that there's interpretation out there by the state of Arizona and even the Superior Court that they go by the date that the garnishment was served on the garnishee. So our, ours is a little bit more, uh, uh, is broader. It, it allows a little bit more time than those more stringent interpretations allow. Uh, but that is the position that the bench has taken. What I would suggest is that you have to read the bodies of the orders of continuing lien. Some of them have the percentages, some of them don't. They're all different. Um, but obviously the ones that get reduced to the 15%, uh, those have a percentage in them. You need to verify what the date of the writ was. Um, the, the others, there's a lot of law firms that are still putting in the body of the order of continuing lien that this was a debt that was incurred prior to December 5th and that the withholding percentage should be 25%. Uh, we are just crossing out that language because that is not our interpretation. That is not what we believe the law says. The courts have been given this cover sheet, which is attached here. Um, hopefully all courts are attaching this. My court, we attach it to every um, application for writ, uh, for every writ of garnishment, and we attach it to every order of continuing lien uh, because we don't know what the paperwork that they're getting as to the worksheet because, like I said, the writ of restitution, the writ of, I'm sorry, keep saying restitution, the writ of garnishment doesn't always have the percentage in it and the garnishees go by the worksheet that the creditor gives them. And so we just give them this warning for them to know um, that, uh, that if there's an issue and that they're getting different amounts that they should seek legal advice. Um, so, and the same with the, the bank. The banks have actually been, um, as, as every they, they've been doing it by the date that they were served the writs, and they've been withholding with the new percentages. Most of the banks. Um, so once in a while, you we, we've been getting orders of continuing lien because they believe the banks aren't taking out enough, um, whether it be because. The, that creditor has a different interpretation or because the writ was actually fired, filed prior to December 5th. So any questions? I know that that was a lot of information. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions or any concerns about this topic?
so again, all I, I, I suggest to everyone that you please review the, 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 I know that before we used to kind of blindly sign uh, writs of garnishment or orders of continuing lien uh, with just a cursory uh, glance at them, but now you really have to go in and look to make sure that language about the 25% is not in there. All right, and, and that's I'm, all I have on this topic if there's no questions. I'll just add that the reason we did that other attachment is that um, we don't actually have control over the garnishment forms. The garnishment forms are uh, done by the AOC and those forms have blanks to allow the parties to put the numbers in themselves. So it didn't really provide uh, guidance. And so that's why we uh, did that other sheet. All right, we're gonna change gears entirely and talk about uh, injunctions against harassment and pre-issuance hearings. Judge Riggs, did you wanna talk about this one? Oh, I sent you a message that Judge Riggs, I guess, has lost her voice. Okay. Um, so I, I, I can take this one as well if you want. Okay. Um, so uh, with, with, the, with the injunctions against harassment, um, what, what the, the statute actually says is that the judge needs to make the determination if an injunction should issue without the hearing. So to me, this means that the, the rule is that all requests for injunction against harassment get set for a pre-issuance hearing. And then if the judge finds that there is good cause or that there would be irreparable harm if it's granted without, if, if unless it's granted without the hearing, then it can be granted without the hearing. Uh, but the rule of thumb should be that the uh, that the injunction should be set to pre-issuance. Uh, we're finding that a lot of uh, injunctions are just being ordered, um, and I don't I don't know what the other judges uh, are finding, but a lot of them when they actually go to a contested hearing, end up being dismissed. Um, so I think that unless there is a good cause, if there's been threats with guns or or, or, or something that might lead to a, a, a bigger concern, if it's just a squabble between neighbors, uh, that the best course would be to always set it for pre-issuance. Any questions on that? Now, we recognize that this may not make some people happy, um, but we really do believe that is the correct interpretation of the statute. The statute does say or, um, but that is clearly a typo because when you when you look at it, uh, you have to have an you have a this or that, and there's no that. Um, so it it should have been an and. Uh, as Judge Huberman when uh, explained that you you do find the harassment and you and you find the good that harm would happen if it was done without a hearing, 
but um, we do we do value due process, and you you almost certainly need to hear from the other side before you you go ahead with that. Any questions on this? Um, and then as to adding the children, the rule is very similar to what we do with orders of protection. Um, if it's not related to a family case, uh, you can add the the children of the plaintiff as a protected party, uh, neighbor against neighbor or whatnot. There's no issue with adding the child. Uh, but when there are family implications, um, the court should not add the children as protected parties if it may affect an order from a family law case. Uh, these are the cases where uh, mom and, and, and new girlfriend or mom and new wife uh, have an issue and they, 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 they request uh, injunctions against each other. So they are injunctions and not orders of protection. Uh, but not allowing uh, contact uh, with the children may mean that dad won't be able to see the children or that stepmom has to leave the house um, every time it's dad's turn to see the children. And all of those things would affect uh, the, the, the family orders. So just be a little more... Uh, I guess just ask more questions and figure out what the situation is uh, before just uh, adding the children um, into those orders. Uh, I, again, normally a child of the plaintiff can be added um, into any of the protective orders, uh, but just be a, a little bit cautious if it is one of these types of cases that may affect the visitations. And I'm going to go a step further and say, be really, really careful about any protected party and any additional person that you're going to add. And the reason I say that is if you look at the rule on modifying and dismissing an order of protection, it says the plaintiff can file that motion. It does not say that a another protected person can file that motion. Uh, so if you add someone else on an order of protection, arguably they can't even come in and say, I never wanted to be on this, so please take me off. So before you add another adult on it, um, find out why that other adult just can't come in and ask for it themselves. Uh, if you're going to be protecting that address and the person lives at that address, well, then they're not going to be harassed at that address because that person's not supposed to be coming to that address. Uh, we, we, you just need to be really, really careful about that. We also have this, and if you go back in our feed and listen to the presentation by Judge Polk on probate, um, we do have situations where children will come in and try to protect their elderly parent from their siblings because they're using this as a substitute or a getting ready to file in probate and they want to block their siblings from having access to their elderly parent. Um, so you need to just be really careful when you put any protected party on that. 
And this session is going to go really quick if if we don't start getting some feedback. So do we have any questions or comments or concerns? Uh, on the, the injunctions against harassment, um, is that something then if we're going to set everything for hearing that they just do at the counter? Because generally what happens when I've been at court is the clerks just bring back uh, a file and they say we have an injunction and they're sending them in. But if, if the practice or the policy is going to be that we should set them for hearings, isn't that something they should just do right at the counter? So, I'm, glad you asked, I'm glad you asked that question because the rules specifically say that each person <laughs> who comes in to apply shall be seen by the judge. So no, and, you will do and And the rule also says that the judge makes the determination if it doesn't have to be set for the hearing. So if you just as a blanket set them all for hearing and you have someone who's being threatened by by someone uh, threatening to kill them with a gun or something is, has shot at them or whatever, that's something that you would issue immediately. You wouldn't be able to see that. So the determination always comes from the judge, not from the clerks at the counter. Okay. That's, what, I mean, that's always been the standard practice, so I'm confused because, I mean, that's what we always did was you heard them and if you thought it was something that the other party should be heard on. You said it for hearing, whatever. But the way you said it before, you made it sound like almost everything should be set for hearing. So I'm just confused. Well, no, that's not what I said. I said that that is the default, is that it is set for hearing. And then the judge can make the exception and actually issue the injunction if they feel that the victim uh, is may may suffer irreparable harm. So it's it's it here Charles put it up. It says the judge has to determine whether the injunction requested should issue without a further hearing. So that is the determination that the judges make. What I am saying is that we we've been noticing a lot and and you know this is not something that's just an issue with pro tems. I'm guessing, you know, for judges on the day that you're on protective order duty and you get, you know, 20 of these one after another. I mean, sometimes it, it's you, you might just say, OK, I'm going to issue this one. I'm going to issue this one. And they get issued. And we're just saying that you need to be a little bit more um, attentive to what you're issuing and why you're issuing it. I guess that's the way I would put it. Hey, Judge Burn, this is Denise Holliday. Yeah, have a yeah let, let me also just emphasize we're talking about injunctions against harassment here. We are not talking about protection, uh, particularly in order of protection where they live together. Uh, you can't set that to a pre-issuance right. hearing, okay? If, right. you, if you have any question about that, go back and rent the War of the Roses. <laughs> uh, not not the British, not the British Civil War, but the uh, the movie, uh, and you'll see why. Okay, if they live together, you pretty much either have to grant it or not grant it. But injunctions against harassment, uh, they're not living together, and uh, you probably want to hear from the other side. All right, Denise. So my question is, I've been serving as a pro tem a long time. And I know that like in Desert Ridge, she's been following this exact same procedure, but they're 
when I'm sitting on another bench, there are many other judges that don't do that. Um, what's the best practices that you're suggesting? Because I feel like if I'm on that judge's bench and they don't set it for pre-issuance hearing, they'll be irritated that I set five. And, and thank you. I, I was going to either <laughs> mention that or have Taj pop in with that. Is there maybe where you will get the stink eye for doing this? And, and that is an official legal term, stink eye. Uh, so my answer to that is my answer to everything. Um, you are the judge for that day and you need to, to apply the law as you think is correctly and, and that you feel comfortable with. Uh, and and so you do what you do to feel comfortable. Um, if if that is to set everything to a pre-issuance hearing in a court where they don't like that, you may not get called. Um, and and that's just a choice that you would have to make. I mean, I Any guess that's questions? a valid, that's um, a valid point. But for me, I I. I mean, I also, when you end up issuing them in cases that may have required a hearing instead of just issuing it, most of those cases are going to be set to a hearing anyways, and the judge is going to have to resolve the hearing anyway. So I don't think that you're necessarily adding more work onto the judge, and you're actually probably setting up the case in a better light than just issuing it, and then having to deal with a disgruntled plaintiff that you're dismissing it afterwards. Well, I, I, point though, the issue is in a lot of the courts is they're rotating. So don't really know. I mean, I'm, I, 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 maybe I can't speak. Well, I know at Santan Regional Center, they rotate. So one judge is hearing them all. So you don't know what one judge is doing you're cutting out. We can't hear you. You're coming across very garbled. Yeah, Keith, you might need to call in on a different line or, or just try reconnecting. But I, I think where you were going with, if you're rotating and you're not sure which the judges, again, I'm, I'm just going to say um, follow the law. I was just going to chime in and say, um, Having had some experience with that, I think it just become because it is a very difficult situation for our pro tems, um, trying to respect the uh, preferences of the court and the bench that they are sitting in for, particularly when either the court staff or the um, JP makes it clear that that is not their practice and that is not what they want done. I think at that point, it simply becomes a matter of a decision for the pro tem whether or not they want to, well, both for the judge, whether or not they want to have that pro tem back, but also conversely for the pro tem, whether or not they want to pro tem in that court if they feel that they're going to get the kind of pushback or dissatisfaction from the judge for exercising their judicial discretion in a way that they feel is in compliance with what the law requires. So I think that's just a personal decision for the pro tem to determine whether or not that's the best for, for them to serve in. Thank you. And and when you're addressing the plaintiff, I mean, what I what I say in this situation is um, that this very likely does qualify for harassment. This would qualify for an injunction, but 
the law does require that if it's not in emergent, I hear from the other side. And so that is why we're setting this for a hearing and they, they generally understand that. All right, so unless there's anything else, we will move on. And we're gonna change gears altogether again and talk about state versus stow that is subsection i that is getting suspended jail time for uh compliance with the interlock and that is compliance with the interlock and in that really odd decision of state versus stow in an appeal from superior court where there was supervised probation and the the probation officer agreed that the defendant didn't have a vehicle and didn't drive. They did ask that the jail time be suspended anyway. Uh, and so that got published and now it is uh, causing people at, at the initial sentencing to ask that the jail time being suspended because their defendant doesn't have a vehicle and promises not to drive for the next year. Uh, so that has created quite a bit of pushback uh, and it created created quite a bit of discussion at the best practice committee as well. And uh, and what the best practice committee decided and that best practice is attached uh, in, you know, if, when you go to the packet here, there's a lot of pages in here because we put a lot of our best practices in here and, and uh, the suspended jail time best practices in here. But what the committee decided is that we're not going to do it at the initial sentencing. Um, keep in mind, subsection I is optional. It's not mandatory. And so when I'm taking a change of plea that is going to involve subsection I, I'm going to ask the defendant, do you have a vehicle? And do you intend to install the interlock? And then I'm going to note that in the file and if the answer is no, I don't have a vehicle and no, I'm not going to install the interlock, then fine, then I'm not suspending any jail time. I'll, if if the plea says that's that that we're required to do that, I'll, I'll reject the plea. Uh, you only qualify for that suspended jail time if you do get the interlock. Uh, and then the question is, what if it's an older case and you've got an order to show cause and at that order to show cause they um, they state that they don't have a vehicle. Uh, you can look at possibly suspending the jail time at that point. If you are convinced, I mean, you can have them bring in their motor vehicle record it's better than not having anything at all to try to decide whether or not they really didn't drive for a year. MVD takes the position that it's any vehicle that you drive. Uh, so you can install the interlock in a family member's car. You can install the interlock in a car that uh, where you work. Uh, and you know, I, I would really argue that if they're they've driven at all during that year, they don't qualify for the suspended jail time. So any any comments or questions about this one? How many of you have gotten pushback? No one? Because this came from a pro tem who wanted it on the agenda. I, okay. I mean, I had a judge ask me the other day about this very topic that someone was telling them that since the person didn't have a car, 
that they should just go ahead and suspend the jail. So I know it comes up. This is Kina. So what I have done is kept it. And then if, if they come back after the year, then I ask, have you had a car? Have you driven? Have you done those things? Um, and then it could be suspended at that time. That was the instruction that I've given, but never at the initial. Hi, and this next one is is just a lot of fun uh, when this happens to you for the first time is, you know, as you know, we will never have uh, the county attorney present at our arraignments. And so we will get someone coming in with a DUI, probably a simple DUI. Uh, they come in with an attorney and they demand that you have to accept the guilty plea. Well, no, you don't. Uh, and uh, I, I attached the special action that was taken up on one of our judges uh, where uh, the judge said, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Uh, the reason, well, the reason the attorney or the defendant wants to do it uh, is that it's probably, it was cited as a simple DUI when it might be an extreme or a super extreme or the officer might have missed that the defendant's driver's license was suspended, and so therefore this should actually be filed as a felony. If you take the guilty plea on the misdemeanor, then jeopardy attaches, and that can never be refiled as uh, as the felony uh, or recharged as a super extreme. Uh, so basically, they're they're trying to pull one over on the court. So what Criminal Rule 14.4 actually says is at an arraignment, the court must enter the defendant's plea of not guilty unless the defendant pleads guilty or no contest and the court accepts the plea. Uh, another thing I would say is you don't know that the victim in the case either. Uh, so that's another reason not to, uh, you know, why obviously we, we can't be forced to accept guilty pleas at arraignments because uh, there may have um, been a, a victim. So what the Mayan versus Wismer case says is if at arraignment, the trial court ascertains the defendant wishes to plead guilty to the charge or charges without a plea. And remember, they have to plead guilty to everything. Without a plea agreement, the guilty plea colloquy may be set in the future. So what you do is you say um, the court will note for the record that the defendant wishes to plead guilty and the court will set this out for a change of plea with notice to the state. This way the state can go in there and file a notice of prior conviction. Um, if, if there is a prior or if this is a third, then they'll dismiss and file it as a felony. If there was a suspended license or if there were children in the car, they'll dismiss and file it as a felony. So that's how you handle that. Any questions about this one? Right, and has has this happened to anyone? There's one law firm out there that appears to be doing it consistently now, because I've heard of that that it happened in a couple of courts. All right. So the next one is another recent court of appeals decision. And this is um, State versus Haggerty. 
And what happened in State versus Haggerty, and that was in Superior Court, yay, uh, the judge apparently just relied on a video of an explanation of constitutional rights and didn't have that colloquy with the defendant personally. And what was why, and, and I don't think anyone does that. So we're not concerned about that, but what we were concerned about is the decision dropped a footnote that said, you know, we're not taking a position on group advisories. And those of us with heavy dockets probably do a lot of group advisories where you advise the whole group as these are your constitutional rights. So what we wanted to do was to ensure that when we do a group advisory, that we, we cover all the bases. So we look at rule 17.2 and it does say the court must address the defendant personally uh, and inform the defendant of the following term defendant understands. And so our best practice, and it's still a draft at this point, but I think it's pretty close to being final, uh, does say the best practice is to go through that with each defendant individually. But if you're going to rely on a group advisory, then to follow these steps, such as to make note of the time that you're reading the group advisory, try to scan to ensure that the person in front of you was there and ask the person, did you hear me read your rights? Uh, and if there's anything other than an affirmative yes, you know, if there's any flinching, if there's any uh, uh, humming or hemming or hawing, then you do it again uh, to make sure that you have personally addressed the defendant about their rights. And you would do it again as a group advisory and say to everyone here, please pay attention. This is your, these are your constitutional rights. Um, this is the immigration information that I must read to everyone um, and make a note of who's in the courtroom uh, so that uh, they're there when they're there, when they, when they come up to you. Uh, any questions or comments about this? All right, and we'll change directions and talk about service on mobile home parks. Judge Driggs. Okay, so um, with mobile home parks, it's just a little bit different. Um, so when you're talking about the summons shall be issued on the day the complaint is filed. So meaning when they come file and get a date for the court, for the eviction action um, with the court, then they need to have that served on the mobile, heart, mobile home park that day. And it's to be clear that they have to come back um, and it has to be at least three days, but not more than six days from the date of the summons. So they're going to come here. They're going to get a date and it can't be more than six days out. Um, and then the tenant is deemed to receive that summons three days after the summons is mailed. If personal service is attempted, so if they try to serve them in person and they can't, then they're going to mail it. And then it's deemed received three days after, not the five days on the regular. Um, so this is where sometimes you'll see that they're asking for the motion for alternative service. We see that happen um, because the rules of civil procedure apply in this. 
Um, it doesn't say anything right here, but that's that's what it says. It applies the rules of civil civil procedure. So some law firms will send, well, most will send that motion for um, alternative service, and that will be certified mail, return receipt, and posted on the door. And then it's considered received on the day, and they need to come back in two days. Um, it has to be served at least two days before the return day. So meaning they need to have two days notice to come back and be in court. And um, and then it says it's the equivalent of having served the tenant in purpose for the purposes of awarding the money judgment. Is there a different question on this or is that clear? And we'll go on to the next part. Um, so we have a best practice and there's a checklist of what to go. Well, we have a checklist. Are you showing the, the checklist, Miss? Sorry, I'll call you Mr. Adonetto, Charlie. Um, are we gonna go over that or do you want, cause right now I have the best practice pulled up. We could just go over the best practice first. Uh, we can go over the best practice first. Okay. All right, so I can share this screen with you, the best practice or Charlie, you're gonna share it here. Hold on. No, you can share it. Okay, are you seeing it everyone? Should move it's really it tiny. I need to okay, make it bigger. Move it to this one. That showing it? Uh, what? I'll go ahead and show it. Okay, sorry about that, everyone. It's because I have two different screens, and so then I move them. Okay. Stop sharing. There we go. Okay, you, okay. you need to stop sharing. I do. All right, so with the best practice, um, we want to make sure that in the initial appearances and with trials that, you know, when you give the initial appearance, you're gonna call the case, call the case number, and then swear in the defendant so that anything that they're saying, um, it's on, the, it's, you know, sworn to be, to tell the truth. And so you've already had them sworn in on the record. <laughs> and once you, um, some some judges will state the complaints. I always let the attorney state the complaints. Um, and during that time that they're stating the complaints, I'm looking at service, making sure service was proper. And I'm also looking at the five day notice or whichever the notice was, um, making sure that that's either proper or, you know, being able to follow along on what the notice that was given. And then um, after they're done with the complaint, then ask the defendant how they respond. Or you say, is it true? Or do you say, do you owe the rent? Or you know, whatever the complaint was, I asked them, you know, how do you respond to this complaint so that they can either say whether they're they're guilty, which I really don't like that we're calling them guilty. It sounds like a crime. I wish we could change that. <laughs> um, responsible, not responsible. Um, irresponsible, do you pay, owe the rent? Did you do this or, you know, whatever the complaint is and then let them give an answer. And so that's where um, with the best practice, you have to decide if it should be set for a trial. So if they're denying the allegations in the complaint, sometimes they'll say, no, I don't owe rent. Um, I am getting rental assistance and it's coming soon. And then, so you have to say, so you do owe rent, but rental assistance is coming. So that's, they still owe the rent. They just didn't understand the question. They answered it wrong or whatever. Um, but if there are some issues where they say, I owe the rent, but I don't owe this much, or I never got a five day notice, or so then, you know, always ask a few more questions to just to make sure that 
that there is a legal basis for setting the trial. Um, just because they say, I never received a Friday notice, doesn't mean they didn't receive it. Um, you look at the notice, if it was um, sent by certified mail, then it's deemed received five days later. Um, so you will say, well, it looks like certified, it was certified mail, um, so it's deemed received, so you did get that five-day notice. Um, people don't often get their certified mail, um, but, but the laws here say it's deemed received. Um, so you can ask more questions to, to see what they're saying and determine if there really is an issue. Um, today, I had a few, like, I tried to pay the rent, um, but they didn't accept the rent. So then you say, well, when did you try to pay the rent? Did, you, did they try to pay it within that five-day cure period, or did they try paying it yesterday? So those are all things that you're going to look at to determine if you really should be set for a trial. And um, I think when I was first learning, some judges said, well, if they deny it, you just set it for a trial. I think there needs to be more more involved with setting it for a trial or not setting it for a trial. Um, if they just say, um, you know, I never see the five-day notice, you can't just decide, okay, they didn't see the five-day notice, so then I'm dismissing because they said they didn't. I mean, defendants will tell you all kinds of things because, you know, they don't want to be evicted. And we don't want to sit here and evict them without listening to them, but we can't just say, oh, well, they didn't receive a five-day notice because they said so and dismiss. That, that doesn't work either. So we need to listen to both sides and make it a good conclusion as to whether it needs to be set for trial. Um, some issues that do come up um, can be resolved right there and then, and it doesn't need to be set for a trial. Because also you do remember, and some attorneys will say this, they'll say, we can set this for a trial, but then it's going to cost more in attorney's fees. Well, that's true too, but if it needs to be a trial, then we're going to set it for a trial and, and we're going to determine um, what, what the outcome will be after trial. Um, but sometimes if there's ledger issues and the, the law firm or the plaintiff didn't supply the ledger to me, and I think that it could have been just resolved by looking at a ledger, I will reset it for a new hearing, but not call it a trial so that it can't be considered um, trial fees added on. Because sometimes we just need to look at a ledger and determine whether um, what the defendant is arguing is true or not, because it can be resolved sometimes right there and then, because Sometimes defendants don't really understand what they're looking at. And you can say, well, look, we're looking at the ledger and point out everything. And then they'll say, oh, OK, I agree. I do owe that. And then it's resolved. And it doesn't have to incur more attorney's fees or trial fees or even set it for a new day and make them come to court for another day. Um, and as a pro tem, I don't think you should worry about if the judge is going to be upset that you set it for a trial or not. <laughs> I know that. Sometimes I think some of you might think about that. Some of you might not. Sometimes I come back from um, a day of meetings or a vacation and then there's a bunch of trials set and I'll think, well, did this pro tem not even look to see what these are, what these issues are? Um, but you know, that doesn't happen that often. I did have one pro tem who was a former judge who told me, oh, I said all the difficult ones for when you were getting on Monday, you know, and he knew he was going to be my pro tem for two days. And he said all the trials for when I got back. So I'm like, well, thank you very little. And <laughs> we used him as little as possible. But anyway, um, he's long gone. There's none of you guys. Um, so any questions on that as far as finding the trial? Sometimes the attorneys will say, um, um, what is the legal basis for setting this for a trial? And 
I know that some judges get offended with that question, but for me, it's a reminder. It's like, what is the legal basis that I'm setting this for a trial? And I'll state for the record what the legal basis is. And sometimes I can tell that, oh, I was just trying to give this person, I guess, too much of a chance. There is no legal basis. And I'll say, oh, never mind. There's no, you're right. There's no legal basis. And and then I'll find the reason why we need to just say, sorry, what I'm finding is you did not pay the rent and you tried, but this wasn't good enough. They didn't have to accept whatever it was. You know, there'll be times where I will find, you know, you're right. There's not really a legal basis. We don't need to spend another day in trial. So just, you know, consider all sides all the time and you'll, you'll know when to set it for trial or not. And but also don't, um, don't forget that you have the obligation. The, the, the rules say that you shall set for trial if there has been a legal defense. Right, so, if there's a legal defense. So that's why if they ask, what's the legal defense? Right. And you can't come up with one. And you're like, oh, yeah, there's not a legal defense here. So I can't set this for trial. That happens. Any questions or comments on that? Hey, Leonor, Leonor, um, I don't use the guilty, not guilty uh, parlance in my eviction actions. Uh, I stopped doing that 20 plus years ago. Uh, but what I do do is simply uh, ask the tenant if he or she understands the allegations, whether it's non-payment of rent or, or a material breach. Uh, or an irreparable breach. And if they answer in the affirmative, well, then we move forward. If they, if they say, no, I don't understand, well, then I have plaintiff's counsel reiterate the basis of the eviction action and uh, the prayer for relief, um, the relief that they're seeking. Uh, once the, and then I'll re-ask the tenant if he or she understands the allegation and 99% of the time after it's been reiterated, they'll, they'll say yes, if they do understand. And then um, uh, I'll ask them if they admit or if they deny owing rent, or if they admit or deny having committed the material breach or whatever other breach is being alleged. And usually that makes them understand a little bit better and it gets away, takes me away from having to, you know, use the, the, uh, the guilty, not guilty verbiage, which you know, in that setting, for most of them, it probably provides a you know a negative connotation, and so to avoid all of that, that's what I do: uh, admit or or deny uh, the allegation. As far as you know, every now and then a, a tenant will have a valid defense. You know, uh, for example, they weren't in possession of the premises at the time that the complaint was filed. I had I had one of those situations about a month ago, and plaintiff's counsel was adamant that even though um, the tenant was not in possession of the premises at the time that the complaint was filed. They've nonetheless admitted the debt, and so judgment should be issued. Well, I told him he was wrong because it's a legal defense if you're not in possession of the premises at the time the complaint was filed. And, and we ended up going to trial, actually, and the lady showed up with proof of the having rented the U-Haul truck, the moving van, show receipts of the hotel, you know, two or three consecutive nights within those five days where they had to vacate after receiving the five day notice. And I ended up dismissing the case uh, with prejudice. But uh, uh, it's not too often that you'll find a defendant that 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 uh, that'll be able to convince the court that they have a valid defense and then you move forward uh, to trial. And uh, but again, 
uh, admit or deny the allegation is is my preference in terms of verbiage, and maybe and it may be, it may be helpful for other judges to do the same or for pro tems to do the same. It just seems a lot easier, a, so, a more softer approach, a softer approach to a situation where defendants find themselves being evicted. Thank you. I appreciate that because it, it is true. It does feel like they're being a criminal when you say guilty, not guilty, and that's that's in the forms of judgments that are sent to us, and it's also in our form. Um, I mean. It, and if that's something that can be changed, admit or deny, that's that is nicer verbiage. It's in statute, so yeah. So then the, that's the it's problem. It's a shame that you know. <laughs> it's a shame you no longer know a legislator. Uh, well, <laughs> well, I'm sure the, we still know people in there. <laughs> the the cases that that I think, um, and and I understand and appreciate it, and would would always do that and try to see if there's a legal basis. But on, on public housing, um, I try to look to see if there's any reason that you really can set it for trial because the consequences are so great that it's not just an eviction that that person's going to lose their access to public housing for five years if they are evicted. And so if there's not drugs or a weapon involved and the defendant shows up and they said, I didn't sign the form right, or it's a technicality or there's any kind of issue, um, I will will go out of my way to set it for trial in hopes um, that they can resolve the issue short of the person being evicted um, because of that the consequence of what it is uh, that eviction is on person's eligibility all right thank you for that and then this part of the um, bullet point that to ensure procedural due process when doing an eviction trial so we just want to make sure when you're doing a trial and it's different now because it's virtual in most courts and in my court i rarely have people in person um you still just want to make sure that for the record you're making it clear that it's a trial i always start with the instructions on how we're going to proceed in a trial and then we make sure that there's you know the opening statement the testimony and then um cross-examination and um, make sure that everybody's heard mm -hmm. and then i make sure to say that you know the party that does not um, prevail or does not win uh, does have the right to appeal and then that information is given to them with the judgment all right and so then here we have pulled up um charlie pulled up the eviction initial appearance check checklist i'm going to go over every single part of it but it's pretty clear for you so when you first are you know looking at it pretty soon you'll get it all memorized but all of this helps you so that you don't forget anything that needs to be um, done when you're looking at the paperwork when you're you know asking them questions and in any kind of question you have just keep this with you at all times because this gives you every little detail of um of what needs to be involved in that initial hearing and what you should be looking for i mean and even still you know this is my seventh year i called charlie the other day to say okay they gave a 10-day that was a second day non-curable 10-day on what appears to me it should have been a first 10-day is this correct? You know, and so I just, you know, sometimes two heads are better than one. And and it true, it should have been a, a first 10 day that could have been curable, but they just issued a 10 day and we're trying to like kick the people out on um, a non-curable 10 day. So anyways, um, those are things you're gonna look at and and it's all here. It's very detailed and you know, we appreciate these checklists that Charlie makes because it, it really helps because evictions can be complicated. There's no one way because everybody has a different issue. I mean, a lot of times you'll just get non-payment of rent, but then issues pop up and you need to be able to listen to everybody and determine 
you know, trial, determine whether you need to look at evidence and all of those things to give everybody a fair hearing. Any questions? And you'll notice I, I did stop the checklist on this pretty little graph. Uh, and this addresses the 30 days, uh, 30 days before the, uh, well, 30 days notice required by the CARES Act uh, as opposed to the Arizona five-day notice for non-payment of rent. Uh, the reason I stopped on this is there, there was a case in Colorado which decided that you could not file the action before the 30 days. As you know, our, our interpretation has been that it's still five days. After the five-day notice, you can file. We just don't execute the writ until after the 30 days. Um, there, there have been a couple court decisions in other states, in other states, they're not binding, that do not in, uh, agree with that interpretation. Um, we've surveyed the best practice committee. I think we're not going to change our interpretation, uh, but stay tuned. Uh, Judge Huberman, do you want to add anything? Yeah, mute. You're muted. Sorry. I think at the time when we interpreted that is there were two different parts to the moratorium. And there were parts of it that said you couldn't even file a case. And in for these types, it didn't talk about filing, it just talked about removing someone. And because of other areas in the law where the removal meant the writ, that is the interpretation we went with. Um, I don't know at this point, we've been doing it for three years to change that, uh, I think would be a little extreme, but, um, I've only had one case where this was argued in my court and then was never appealed. So I don't know if any other courts had, uh, that, that, um, and that's all I can say. <laughs> Uh, and one of the pro tems did ask that we talk about calculating DUI incarceration credit. Judge Schuberman. This was me. Um, so the, the law recently changed, um, and this talks about credit only for DUI cases. Um, so if you want to give jail credit for something else, that's fine. Uh, but it says that anyone who's going to get credit um, has to serve at least eight consecutive hours for each day of credit. The state normally is adding language into all the pleas that does specifically say that in order to get credit, it has to be time actually served in jail, I think, or that someone actually had to have been booked. Um, so the arguments that we used to get about someone being detained at the police station for four hours while they were investigating and should be giving credit for the day in jail, uh, go against the, the the language of the plea, for one, and the clear language of the statute also. Um, in the end, though, I think it's, it is the defendant who is asking for the credit, and they should be able to prove that they have completed the 80 consecutive hours in order to get that credit. 
Um, a lot of times we can open the file and see if that's true. Uh, you can see what time um, they were they were booked into the jail, what time they were seen by the IA judge at the jail, and you can uh, calculate if it's been eight hours or it was six hours. But you know it took them another two hours to probably be released, and so you can think that that was eight hours. Uh, but there's other times that, especially on the long-form complaints, we don't have that information, and it is up to the defendant to prove that they do have the eight consecutive hours. I know that back in the day, we used to have defendants that would self-surrender and then be turned away uh, because they had a medical issue or that um, for whatever other reasons that judges were giving credit um, for, for having gone to the jail even though they didn't get in. Um, that doesn't actually contradict what this statute says because this only talks about time served credit, not future credit. Uh, but again, I think in general, most judges have now taken the position that for a day in jail and a DUI to be valid, it should be at least at eight hours in jail. That's what my court is doing. So that's the way I'm looking at it. So I don't know if there's any questions on this. And Judge Huberman, do you want to talk about this or do you want me to? No, I think you're on the committee, so I think that you would be a better person to talk about this. Okay, so guess what? Work release is coming back to Maricopa County. Uh, maybe, possibly soon. Uh, you know, when, when they met, they, they kept talking about June 30th and then also just kind of made it clear that there's no conceivable way they'll be ready by June 30th. Um, so it, it might return on June 30th and possibly not. They, when it does return, there is going to be a limit on work release. There, there will be a limit of 80 males and 40 females. Uh, and so this may create an issue because of the courts. And, and we've done a survey in, in our uh, justice courts, and I don't think at this point there that many were holding uh, cases to be sent to be jailed because of work release. Um, I mean, I think we did that for a while when we thought this might happen quickly, but then as it started to spread longer and longer, you know, it's like, okay, at this point you're going to have to do your jail time. Um, but some of the cities may still have. Uh, have a log jam of a whole bunch of people who need to get sentenced with work release. So because of that, the jail is looking into possible reservation system, perhaps online. So kind of, um, and actually this, the Scottsdale city jail um, does have an online reservation system. If you have someone who is going to be serving no more than two days, they can go online and you book it like, uh, like an Airbnb. Uh, you actually book time in the Scottsdale, they call it the Scottsdale dorms. Uh, so the, the jail is looking into possibly doing something like that. Again, that's not going to be done by June 30th. They're also going to limit work release to the, where it's required by statute. 
So if you look at 281381 and 281382, that's most likely going to be for second offenses where uh, we have the long jail sentences uh, because it, it, it's going to be after the first 48 hours. Uh, so th there, there's not going to be work release for anything that isn't mandatory. Because we don't want to waste a bed and then have somebody who will show up and, and not medically qualify, the jail is going to look into strengthening the medical pre-qualification to try to avoid those empty beds. And then just a reminder, look at 281380 to uh, you're pretty much expected to allow work release after 48 hours, up to 12 hours a day, six days a week, unless the court finds good cause to not allow the release and, and places those findings on the record. So any questions about work release? All right, let's talk about sentencing. So um, because of the new uh, criminal sealing statute, um, and when we had the certificate of second chance added uh, in the prior year, our, our colloquy is longer uh, when we take a plea. So when we do take a plea, uh, those post-conviction rights are the right to file a petition for post-conviction relief and a petition for review. Uh, following the completion of the sentence, the right to file a petition to set aside, and you may also qualify for a certificate of second chance. And then following the statutory wait period and uh, completion of all terms of the sentence, you may file a petition to seal the records of the arrest and conviction. Uh, and that is the colloquy after a plea. And after a trial, you do all three, but you also have to add the right to an appeal within 14 days. So do we have any questions about that? If I may add, we did change our court forms and the forms that is attached now to the judgment um, has been revamped. Much easier to read, doesn't have that little tiny um, writing and it has more relevant information. So there's two big paragraphs of the right to uh, set aside and the right to seal. Um, so I would just suggest everyone make sure that you're attaching those and letting uh, the defendants know that you are also giving them that information. All right, and we did get a question about criminal fine mitigation. Uh, so I'll let Judge Huberman address this one. All right, so there's still in statute a lot of offenses, some civil, um, some criminal, but there's still a series of offenses that have mandatory fines. The interesting thing is that there's another statute that says you can mitigate the fines even if they're mandatory. So the only actual mandatory fine that cannot be uh, mitigated is the DUI. Um, excuse me, although they can do community service or community restitution for the DUI fine, but it can't be mitigated. 
All other fines actually can be mitigated uh, with a finding of hardship or um, the, the reason that the judge wants to mitigate the fine. What cannot be mitigated are a lot of the assessments. So besides the DUI assessments that can't be mitigated, there are others that uh, cannot be mitigated. One of them is the drag racing assessment, the family offenses assessment. Um, I don't know what the dang crime, dangerous crimes assessment, but we don't do dangerous crimes, so. Um, and then there are the other assessments that are part of the, the, the probation $13 assessment, the victim $9, the time payment fee, all of those also cannot be mitigated. But uh, some of them, if the fine is zero, don't apply. So if you impose a zero fine on a racing case, then there is no um, $1,000 racing assessment. But if you impose a fine, um, because that's all your options, either zero or you have to impose a fine. You can do the minimum fine of $1, which would add the $24 in assessments, and then the $1,000 assessment for drug racing. So that's the least amount of fine that you can impose for that. That would be $1,025. Um, and with a lot of the other fines, it's the same way. If you give them at least a $1 fine, those assessments must be added in. Your other option is zero. Um, was that clear or was that more confusing? <laughs> and if anyone hasn't noticed, the 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 surcharge on the fines went up 1% this year in 23. It used to be 78%, now it's 79%. So you might notice that the base fine for a lot of the, the offenses has gone up by a dollar, a dollar fifty. It's a very small amount. Um, again, because none of the fines are actually mandatory, it doesn't really matter that much except in the DUIs, because if you are still imposing the fine, if your your county attorney is giving you a plea that they copy and paste it off of 2022, you, are, you may be imposing an, an illegal sentence, which means you're not imposing the right amount. Uh, so just be aware of that, that if it is a date of offense that occurred in 2023, that fine is no longer with the surcharge 493, it's now like 495 and 50 cents or something like that. So please pay attention to that. And then this chart is the one, what it, the CR is community restitution. So which ones you can actually allow to be uh, done by community restitution and what are not allowed to be paid by community restitution. And you'll note for civil traffic, the only thing that cannot be uh, mitigated or community restitution is the $20 time payment fee. All right, criminal rule 6.1, Judge Huberman, do you want to do that one or do you want me to? I can do that really quickly. So there was again a change in the rules, criminal rules 
Uh, 6.1 talks about the uh, appointment of attorneys. Um, they have added this paragraph C, uh, which is if the defendant is held on bond at the initial appearance, uh, they have a right to be appointed an attorney. Um, so the, the, the year prior, they had added that paragraph B, which required them to get an attorney appointed um, for the purpose of determining release conditions. So every defendant in the initial appearance court now has an attorney assisting them in the initial appearance court uh, because they are in custody and their release conditions are being determined. If that defendant is then released on their own recognizance, um, then that they are no longer entitled to an attorney. Uh, we're talking about cases that are the, the DUI cases or where they're facing jail time, um, which is the the subsection A. So anyone who outside of subsection A, if they're released on their own recognizance, even if they were in jail, uh, they are not uh, necessarily entitled to a public defender or to an attorney. But if that person is released on bond, then they are because they're entitled to the attorney once they're being held on bond. So once the IA commissioner holds them on whatever bond it is, if they end up posting that bond and getting out, they're still being held technically on that bond. So they should be coming to the court um, with an attorney appointed. Uh, obviously, the, when they're in the jail, they're getting attorneys through our video appearance center. Uh, but once they come to our courts, then our courts, we need to make sure that they're getting the public defender or or, or an attorney um, and that they're not talking to the county attorneys without their attorney present. Um, this is definitely not an issue. That, I mean, as a pro tab, you just need to verify that these things are being done and complied with. Uh, it is up to the court to have a system in place to identify which these defendants are and how their attorneys being appointed and how their attorneys being notified. Uh, but just be sure that you are not uh, talking to them if they should be having an, an attorney with them and definitely not allowing them to speak to the county attorney without their attorney. Uh, with, there was a lot of conversation on this. We all believe that this right to an attorney is a right that can be waived. There's no reason why they shouldn't be allowed to waive it. The problem is if they're supposed to be in front of you with an attorney, I personally don't feel comfortable with them waiving an attorney without having the attorney advise them. So it turns into a catch-22, which in the end I would say, you know, I wouldn't allow them to waive the attorney um, in, 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 in general. Any questions on this? All right, we did have questions about restitution hearings. And so uh, you want to look at 13-804. Uh, the court in its sole discretion may order that all or any portion of the fine imposed be allocated as restitution. Uh, and here, here's one of, one of the things that has always concerned me is paragraph G says that the court does not have sufficient evidence to support a finding of the amount. It may conduct a hearing on the issue according to procedures established by court rule. 
Well, one of the reasons we have a lot of questions about restitution hearings is because there is no court rule that establishes the procedures for restitution hearings. That's one of my pet peeves and one of my concerns. But the court may call the defendant to testify and to produce information or evidence. Uh, keep in mind the state does not represent persons who have suffered economic loss at the hearing but may present evidence or information relevant to the issue of restitution. This can make it a little awkward because the victim can come with their own attorney. We don't, we don't have a lot of restitution hearings. Usually there is a stipulation. Uh, the rules of evidence are relaxed. Hearsay is admissible. Uh, there is, um, you do rule on a preponderance of the evidence. And then keep in mind the special rule for unlicensed contractors. The defendant does get credit for any benefit accruing to the victim. And when I first started doing this years ago, um, if you used an unlicensed contractor, you could get the benefit of the job and then ha um, have them prosecuted for unlicensed contracting and then get every penny back. So you would get quite the windfall. Uh, I guess uh, the courts decided to plug that hole because then a few years ago, the Supreme Court said, no, 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 you do get um, the the defendant does get the benefit of any uh, benefit accruing to the victim. So you may literally sit there and end up counting uh, the value of light bulbs or the value of the concrete uh, so that the defendant doesn't have to pay for anything that uh, the victim did actually benefit from. Um, and again, that that can can be somewhat difficult or contentious or time consuming to do. And then also keep in mind for an unlicensed contractor, there is a thousand dollar minimum fine, but that can be concurrent with the restitution. And I think most of us would agree that it's more important that the victim get reimbursed than that the state get that thousand dollar fine. So just keep in mind you can make that concurrent. So any questions about restitution hearings? No, I will say it, our sir, uh, hearing, we have more Charlie, questions at our hearing officer round table. Yes. Hey, Charlie, I had a question about the restitution hearings. So I haven't done a lot of them and I had one where the damage was about $25,000 that they had been paid. And then I found that offset for the, the benefit. Um, is there a limitation? on like a, with civil if there's a ten thousand dollar limitation is there a limitation on what we can award yep title 13 specifically says the, the whole amount of the economic loss so um you you can have restitution into the uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars if they burn down a building or something it uh there there is no limit it, it, it can be painful any other questions all right, we had a question about bond forfeitures or bond forfeiture hearings. So if the defendant does appear, you can release the defendant on their own, re own recognizance and release the bond to the poster, uh, or you can continue to hold the defendant on the bond until the next court date. Again, if you're doing that, then rule 6.1C may come into play. And if all fail to appear at the bond forfeiture hearing, you will forfeit the bond to the general fund for pre-conviction matters or uh, to the general fund or to the fine if it's post-conviction. 
So if if it's pre-conviction and they forfeit the bond, they don't ever get the benefit of that. Uh, and then also, um, you, you can uh, also check to see if the bond poster allowed that to go to the fine. If the bond poster didn't allow it to go to the fine, then um, at the end of the case, you would uh, ref refund that to the bond poster or you can apply it to the fine. So any other questions on bond forfeiture hearings? There are some situations right. where, I mean, usually anybody who had a, a warrant in the first place has the $45 warrant fee. Um, so you could technically apply the $45 to the warrant fee and then the rest of the general fund. I mean, in the end, it all goes to the same pot of money, but at least it cleans it off your your accounting to get the the warranty paid. All right, and we're going to let Judge Driggs talk about interest rates. Oh, sorry, Judge Driggs. Okay, no, I'm here. <laughs> All right, so um, we have our best practice on this, and um, it is looking at the truth and lending statements and what was um, contracted. So the contracted interest rate is the legal interest rate. Um, so what you'll see as pro tems is you'll see in the, like maybe when you're doing EDMS or if you do a um, default hearing for service by publication, there'll be a judgment also that follows that that you'll look at to see if you're gonna sign. And there'll be um, the contract and it is often, because these are those like spot me title loans or those quick loans that people need to get when you know whatever it is that they need that five hundred dollars i'm guessing it's rent but they need a short a small amount of money and they need it fast so they agree to you know do like 204 percent 180 percent whatever this huge amount of um interest on this small loan and then they don't pay it and then these people come back for that loan like years later and it's thousands of dollars in pre-interest pre pre-judgment interest um and so that that's a hard one to to swallow when you have to sign you know three thousand dollars in interest on a five hundred dollar loan um but you know if you look at that and that's the contract that they signed you know so what i do is i look at the um pre-judgment i look at the sorry i look at the contracted rate and I will see that there'll be a date that they are agreeing to pay this amount of interest until a certain amount of time. And then I will consider that like the maturity date and they signed that they were gonna pay this amount of interest on this loan. And I will grant that. And then moving forward, I will put it down to 10% because that's what seems reasonable um, as far as an interest rate, especially on a judgment that, um, is going on for a long time or, or a, a loan that you know they signed and it was supposed to be a quick loan at this this high amount and i did have an appeal happen once because a pro tem did sign um an interest rate on one of these judgments he saw that the pre-interest was like five thousand dollars and that pro tem thought it was ridiculous so he slashed the pre-interest to zero dollars and then put it down to 0% interest moving forward. And that really upset the um, the plaintiff, the creditor, because 
you know, this, this company said, you know, we really look at all of these loans that we give and this person had really bad credit and, you know, all of these things. So they appealed and they won on appeal because um, there was just no reason to put it at 0% interest moving forward and to give them, actually was, they gave them $100 in pre-interest. Um, so then I had to um, do it again because it got remanded. So I had to give the new interest rate. So I went, what we did, um, what we have in the in the best practice, which you have a copy of that best practice, and um, went with the with the contracted amount for the amount of time that they signed that they would pay and the amount of interest they would pay on that specific loan, and then put it down to 10% moving forward. Um, and they appealed it again, and they won again on appeal because the appellate judge said the the legislature decided that this is reasonable. This is a reasonable amount, and so. What you have to think about when you are slash, slashing interest rates is it is a contract that they signed. They may not have understood what all of that interest means. Um, and sometimes it might go to appeal. So make a clear statement as to why you're are reducing the interest rate. Um, read the best practice. Go on that. Also, and one argument that the first appellate judge kind of said on the appeal was you could argue that the the legislature, legislative intent was for a short-term loan that this amount of interest is reasonable, and but not for a perpetual loan. Um, you know, so whatever you do, if you're going to deviate from the contracted rate, explain your legal argument why you did that. Um, so as far as the rest, so let's see, the interest rates now are at 9.25. So you're going to put that wherever they. Um, there's something that doesn't say so on the costs and the attorney's fees. Um, it's going to be at 9.25. Um, and then if there is not an interest rate, it goes to 10% per statute. Um, if it's a stipulated judgment, leave it as it's stipulated. Uh, sometimes you'll see these judgments come in and it says 4.25 and you wonder, is this what they decided they want it to be? Or are they just that far behind on the interest rate being raised? I mean, it's been a while since it was 4.25%. Um, so that's up to you to decide if you want to change it to the 9.25. Um, sometimes they send you these judgments and they just haven't paid attention for over a year and it's still at 4.25. I don't know. Sometimes I think that if they're not paying attention, then you're going to leave it at the 4.25. But um, Charles has said that it's our obligation to put it at the right interest rate. Yeah, so. I, always, I, always, I always give the correct one. <laughs> I sometimes think like no, if they're I not agree. paying attention. I agree. I agree that they're not paying attention, but what are you going to do? <laughs> right. I mean, because that's over a year. It'd be one thing if they put 8.25 and they just missed it by a few months, but you know, 4.25, maybe they're just good with that amount. Teresa <laughs> Lopez, Judge Lopez, you have a comment? No, I have, I have a situation that I want to talk about after you finish. Oh, okay. All right. So leave the stipulated judgment. Sometimes people look at these stipulated judgments and think, oh, that's not right. And they change it, but it's stipulated. So leave it that way. Medical debt contracts after the 12.5, it's that 3%. Um, the lesser of the annual rate equal to the weekly average one year. Uh, it's, it's complicated. Um, hopefully they have it all figured out for you. Um, and again, 3.3% per year. All right, go ahead. Um, well, I guess, it, go ahead. Okay, so I have um, a case. I don't have it before me, and I was going to talk to Charles about it, but I have a, it's a car business. 
that rents cars to potential Uber drivers, okay? Now, the lady explained that, that in this case, they actually owe like $28,000, but because they wanna keep it in our court, they um, agreed to $10,000. But what's going on is that in the contract, it states if the, if the um, defendant does not complete that contract successfully, that the following uh, parts of the contract are for two years. And what it, it's saying that for every week they haven't completed the contract, they're gonna charge them $260 per week. So I had one situation, they paid just a, I think a couple of payments. They were down where they owed $1,970. But because of the contract, they're asking for $10,000 plus the costs, of, you know. And I just, I'm sitting there thinking because of the signed contract, is there anything I can do to, for this? you know, this awful, you know, unconscionable amount. And I, I would want to look at the contract before I um, say anything about that. Not being okay. a math whiz, not being a math whiz, it's possible that just doing that dollar penalty exceeds the legal interest rate. But again, I, I'd, I'd want to look at it. So okay. if you want to send that to me. Yes, thank you. And, and then uh, we do have a question or comment from Jorge. Yeah, yeah. Hi, hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Yeah, my question is about those cases where there's a, a really high interest rate, and and the plaintiff is seeking, you know, usually a default judgment from the ones that I've seen. So, so the best practice is, I, I just want to be clear. So, should we? I, I understand that we have the discretion to decide whether or not to lower the interest rate. So. Um, so I, I guess that means that there is no best practice about whether or not we should, right? I mean, that's my first question, I guess, is should we lower the interest rate? Um, and if you can't tell me that, if, if, if your answer is, well, it's it's in your discretion, then if, if I choose to lower the interest rate, um, what would I just note on the on the judgment, just type on the judgment something like, um, you know, I, I find that the, the contractual interest rate is is unconscionable and and. and in addition, I don't. I find that the legislature intended intended that this such an interest rate only be charged for the life of the the loan period, something like that. So you're saying I I, I literally type that out on the judgment form. Yeah, I think you need to find a specific reason or your findings as to why you lowered it, why you felt that you could deviate from the contracted rate, and I can send you a copy of that appeal so you can read. Um, okay. what the appellate judges had written and there were two different appellate judges because the first appeal went to one judge and then the second appeal went to a new who had replaced that appellate judge to a new judge and so the one said you know you could argue this you could argue that and the other one just said you have to really give a good reason why you deviate from the contracted rate the legislature put this rate because they agree that it must be fine and so I don't know why you could deviate unless you give a really good argument or a good legal reason so it's it's good to see that and, and yeah you'd have and I would say that most people aren't appealing these decisions so, so we have the best practice but the best practice came out before this appeal that I had in my court and and I think it only went to appeal because that pro tem slashed it like totally 
ridiculous slash that it upset the plaintiff that they took it to appeal. And then what happens in an appeal is they get their attorney's fees awarded and then that goes on the defendant again. So here we have this defendant who, who didn't respond ever in all of this default judgment, all of that stuff never even responded. And then two appeals happened and all this like judgment went on them and it was huge. It was probably like in the end, $12,000 for a $500 loan. Oh, that's terrible. And, yeah. and so there, and so there's no policy, right? Like, like the county, for example, doesn't have a policy or the state bar or that there's no policy about what judges should do when they encounter these cases with these high interest rates. No, I mean, we're just abiding by contract laws and the contract that they signed was this, but when we see it not being collected after four years, it feels ridiculous. And that might be an argument also that they waive their right to collect the full amount uh, and that's also in that appeal, saying that if they wait so long to collect this, then that's also a reason why we're not giving them all that prejudgment because they waited too long and that waived their right to collect in full. So I'll send that to you. It's very informative. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. All right. Thank you. So every um, case is every case is going to be a case by case basis. We uh, we, we we don't have a practice of capping. Uh, and if you were to say my personal cap is this, you'll get reversed in in, in an instant. So right. it's right. a case by case analysis. Okay, but okay, that, but that Charles, in that, in that vein, it, what is helpful is a pro tem understanding that that it's ultimately whoever is the judge that day's decision. It's just very helpful if the the judge in the court could leave something for the pro tem indicating what their practice is. I understand that I can follow it or not, but I don't think it's fair to, to people that are uh, plaintiffs um, or defendants that are in the court. Um, if that court has a standard practice of doing something and then a pro tem comes in and just does something completely different. Um, I know in some instances, like on HOA attorney fees, um, I have my own, what I think is right. And if it's not consistent with what that court does, I just won't sign the judgment um, because I think that it's not fair um, for me to come in and just change things um, when that's the court practice. But it's, if you could just encourage judges to, to just leave something that says what their practice is, they're not directing me to do it, but I'd like to know so that I can be consistent or just not sign the judgment or do something and then they can they can do it um I because think that's it, fair. It, it's not like leave a backlog or anything and, and, and i don't know that we should have that in writing i, I certainly you should <laughs> understand the preferences of the court that you're pro in but I, I would probably prefer that that be done verbally right. all right any other questions or comments or concerns Keith, were you muttering? Well, I'm just saying how 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 are they going to do that if the judge isn't there and I'm going to a court I've never been at? Ask, how am I going to know what the practice so is? If, I would say ask the court manager. Yeah, and and my my staff knows too. Like they know that I don't sign judgments without looking carefully at the interest. And if a pro tem comes and they're just going to start signing them off without looking at anything, you know, they they know that that's not what I do, and they'll let 
you know, if, if the pro tem asks, they will they will let the the pro tem know what I do. The staff knows what our practices are. All right. Any other questions, comments, concerns? Actually, I I, I do have one other question about fines, and and the yes. and the question is this, and I I had some case some defendants come in on on old cases where the fines were lower at the time the the complaints were filed in their cases and. And they want to get them resolved. So, what's the correct fine amount uh, to assess? Is it the fine that existed in the year that they recited, or, or the current fines? At the time of the offense. Is that right? Okay. Thank you. All right. Anything else? All right. Great discussion, everybody. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. All right, thank you.